This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to the Paddle and Fin Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Pelican Built Tough. For all situations, go to pelican.com. Yak Gadget. For all your fine kayak fishing accessory needs, go to yakgadget.com. Eastport Marina on the beautiful shores of Dale Hollow Lake. For all your lodging, kayaking, and fishing needs, go to eastport.info. Now let's get this show started. Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of Feather and Fur. Your host, Brad Hurlbus. And tonight we have on Ryan Eater. And we're going to bring him right in. He is a Labrador retriever and kennel operation out of Wisconsin here. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about tonight's episode because we're going to talk puppies because everybody loves puppies. But it's such a, I don't know, it's like, a, I don't know how to describe it because there's a lot of anticipation and there's a lot of like fear there when you go to, you put your deposit down on the dog after you've done the research on breeding and making sure you're going through a responsible breeder and making sure like there's good lines and then there's the puppy selection so we're on a touch base on that maybe touch base a little bit on some breeding stuff but before we jump into all of that let's hear how you got started with hunting which led which obviously led you into dog training so did you grow up hunting with family did you take it on yourself i took it on myself i had some guidance from friends uh oddly enough both my grandfathers were very avid duck hunters. Um, where I live in Northeast Illinois, where I'm from, rather, I, I moved just over the border recently into Wisconsin. But uh, we li- we have what's called the chain of lakes, and you're talking about you know six or seven inland lakes that are connected. And in the 50s and 60s, the lily pads, the habitat, the food source was there. It was just a duck haven, so it was a destination truly for waterfowl hunting. So both my grandfathers grew up doing it neither one of my parents or any of my uncles were real serious hunters. So by the time, you know, we, when I say we, all of my cousins, my siblings, we didn't hunt, we played sports, you know? So 
Uh, I got into 18, 19 years of age, had some friends that hunted. They asked me to come with. Oddly enough, I was training dogs long before I was ever hunting. Really? So I would I would be working dogs for pheasant hunters, for waterfowl hunters, and I wasn't even picking up a shotgun, killing the birds myself. So sure. I have a very non-conventional road to, you know, what I what I do now. But, uh, you know, once you hunt with a dog, it's pretty hard to shake it. You know, you, you do it more and more. You try to find other we, we look for new species, new locations to go hunt. And of course, I'm sure we'll touch a little bit just on hunt testing or, you know, training groups that are involved in the dog sports. And yeah, so I, I actually got started hunting because of dog training. I didn't get into dogs because of hunting. That, wow. Yeah, it might be the first time I've actually heard that before. I know, like, I'm a late onset hunter. My grandparents hunted as well, or at least my one grandfather did. My, now that my parents hunted, no one in my, my direct family hunted. So I basically started I started waterfowl hunting because I rented a farmhouse and the back corner of the field was flooded. And I randomly talked to the farmer. I'm like, hey, can I hunt here? He goes, I don't care. I'm like, oh, I probably should go through hunter safety and figure out how to do this. <laughs> I, man, I wish every farmer said that when I knocked yes. on their door. You get into yeah. dog training and it's like, not only are we looking for land to hunt on, but we need land to train on, you know? Right. So now year round, you're knocking on door. It's no different than, than looking for fields or ponds or whatever. So yeah, um, definitely kind of an ass backwards path to, uh, to what I do, but nonetheless, it, it works. We, we got a lot of dogs out there that pick up a lot of birds each year. And, uh, it's really fun as a breeder, just because you kind of feel like the, the mad scientist, if I breed this dog to this dog, I'm going to get this. And, and you just, it's so much fun to watch them develop and, you know, become what you hope they would. And, uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to your questions and the things you want to talk about and, and we'll dive well, in. Well, let's just start right there. Let's just start with some breeding, some background yeah. knowledge on breeding. I'm not, I'm not an expert on any of this by any means. I've never done anything with breeding before. What do you look for? I mean, now, I guess it depends what qualities you're looking for, but as like, let's for take sure. this from a new dog owner's perspective. What are some good baselines for a good dog? Like, and I know that's a loaded question because it depends what you're looking for. Right. But what are some good baselines? I guess I would say. Yeah. I mean, I think I understand, I understand what you're asking and it, and it makes sense. Uh, you know, for starters, in my case, I'm dealing with a breed that is the most popular breed in the country. I mean, if you look at the AKC registration numbers, labs are number one, the Goldens linger number two, three, or four, depending on the year. And just growing up where I did, everybody had a lab. I mean, it was just what I fell back onto because it was familiarity for me. Um, and as a breed in general, you're talking about great family dog. You're talking about dogs with, they're known for great temperaments. I mean, certainly there are bad examples of every breed out there. Uh, you know, I was around when I got into dogs because I was into animals my whole life. I had pets. I had everything under the sun. But when I when I met a local dog breeder, I was 14, 15 years old. I was going there to help him with his kennel and his litters before I had a driver's license. My parents would drop me off there for a few hours and I would do kennel chores and, and help with the puppies. So I got hands on experience right away, you know, just being around people think being a breeder is just sitting around playing with puppies. And, and I got to tell you, I mean, it's, it's a lot more than the puppies are the fun part. Sure. But there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into the facility 
that goes into the upkeep of of your breeding animals in general, particularly your females, uh, whether it's their nutrition, their vitamins, supplements, uh, your facility needs to be set up to be warmer than usual. Uh, in my experience, I've found I like to keep the females kind of in their own little whelping area, not around the general population of other dogs, because, you know, it's a high stress environment for them. We want to keep sure. those puppies safe. Um, but when, when you say, you know, what are you looking for? I mean, to me, number one, I don't care if you're in the hunting world or the show world, which the breed has kind of done two different, you know, paths in my opinion. Right. I think the retrievers are probably the goldens and the labs might be the worst in terms of, you know, here's your show dogs, here's your field dogs that they, they've really, uh, versus other breeds like a Brittany or something, you can have dual champions still. Uh, but you see you that, like, not, not to cut you, like, you actually see that quite a bit in Griff's right now, like, wire sure. grip-ons, that's what I have, and you can see it a lot in their coat, because, like, if you get back to the true hunting origins, like, the wired hair coat is a lot tighter than the show coat. Okay, I didn't know so, that. So, like, yeah, so, like, the, like, when you look at, like, if you go back to, like, what is that, the Corco Griffin or whatever it is, um, like, it's a tighter coat, and, like, my Gareth has a pretty long coat that takes a lot of maintenance but those original true hunting coats that are tighter require far less maintenance for hunting. So you can kind of see that split even in the breed I'm currently running with. Like there's a show breed that I have this long and, and her coat looks great. And like a, a tight coat looks good too. It's just a different appearance. And that show coat has that long flowing fur, which is terrible when you get into burst. Amen, man. Uh, <laughs> I got into goldens and let me tell you, that's, <laughs> if they even duck in the timber for one second to look for a pheasant at the club, I have 45 minutes of combing and brushing when I get home and it's, it's fine, but you know, the labs are definitely a little easier, but, um, I always you know, joke about that. Like, cause I'm a big grouse hunter. Sure. So I, I started with a lab. My lab was super high strung. Like he would, he would, he was pretty steady, but he didn't want to sit. Like he wanted to run. Like he was just a, so which led me to grouse hunting and he shined. He loved it. He was a far better grouse dog than he ever was a duck dog. And it really mm -hmm. drove my grouse hunting passion. But it went from a five minute tick check on the tailgate to 45 minutes of Coleman. And my buddy's on his second whiskey like, hey, you ever going to join me? Oh, I mean, man. That's the difference. <laughs> it's so true. Well, but imagine a guy with an English setter or, you know, some right? of the Spaniels. It's even worse. Trust me. I have those here, too, sometimes. And uh, yeah, but. You know, really, regardless of application, regardless of, of breed, you you have to, number one, you have to look at health and wellness of the animals you're breeding. I mean, I don't care what it is. Poodles, it makes no difference. Uh, right. And in, today, in today's day and age, whereas people who have mentored me who were doing this back in the 60s, the 70s, and so on, our health testing has come a long way. And really now, I mean, in, in the era of social media, you can look at 50 kennels in an hour and look at their dogs, their litters. And unfortunately, some people can put on a great show on social media when they're really not the quality they they portray. But the bottom line is health testing is so easy to do. It's, it's expensive, but it's not. If you look at what they really, you know, put into these dogs, it's if you're a breeder, not health testing anymore, you're you're doing it wrong. But, you know, I, I came from an era where that stuff was never discussed. So there's a learning curve with all of it for us breeders, too. I'm, I'm sure somebody could go find a breeding I did before we did 42 different, you know, genetic panel tests on them. And but so health and wellness, for sure. 
Um, I that, think that's something you've learned on the way, right? I mean, hundred like percent. Like you said, there might be a litter back before you knew this knowledge, and now you see the benefits of this health testing. Luckily, luckily, none of it's ever come back in a bad way. Meaning, you know, because your 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 anti breeding crowd or just your health clearance police in general will say, "Well, you didn't check this on this dog, but you know that whole litter is okay." Because you sure, don't want you don't want to put dogs in the world knowingly that they're going to have issues, and I don't think any breeder does. I, I any mistakes I ever made were honest at the time, but you know we stand behind our dogs, we back our dogs. I'd be there for that right. client. Whether you know their next two dogs could be on me if they had a problem. We we haven't had sure. it. We haven't had it. Knock on wood. Uh, and, but, and that's the weird thing with genetics, right? Like you can breed two great dogs, and you can have twelve. 11 great puppies, but something with that 12th one just wasn't quite right. I mean, that happened for, for my sure. buddy's English. Um, his his setter is deaf, 100% deaf. Every other dog in that litter is fine. That, it's a very well-known kennel. Every dog they've ever had never had a deaf one, but his was deaf from birth. I mean, sometimes weird, even with health clearances, sometimes weird things can just happen. Oh, it, I mean, and let me, I'll be the first to tell you, and I'll sound anti-health clearance, and I'm not, but they are not the end all be all, as you just said. Sure. And I, I get, it drives me nuts because like the OFA, you know, the orthopedic foundation for animals, we look at their hips, their elbows, their eyes. You can't not do it. Of course, I understand that, but you can breed excellent hips, normal elbows, normal eyes, and half a litter could have bad hips. And you sit there and point at your OFA certification and go, I don't know why this happened breeding it really does take a i don't know the word uh that'd be appropriate to broadcast on there but when you breed you're it's risky it is risky and and you are rolling the dice and and i think what a lot of people don't understand and maybe i can put this into perspective answering your questions is you know you're responsible for producing somebody's next family member it's a pretty big responsibility it really is and and that person for the next 12 or 15 years good or bad your, their dog came from you. So the, uh, the liability, the responsibility, the accountability is, uh, it couldn't be higher. And it's something we take pretty seriously. And, and, um, you know, if you really think about it, the average person gets in front of a whelping box and picks a puppy, how many times in their life, three, four at the high end. Right. You know, at least, at least in your adult life, I mean, maybe kids, you grew up with a dog, but if you're five years old, how well do you remember that experience? I get a even lot. If of you do, even if you do remember the experience, you don't know what you're looking at. You would just been overwhelmed no. by a whole bunch of little balls of joy. Right. Runners, and right? you weren't, you weren't a homeowner. You weren't training that dog for the field at five years old. You weren't asking those types of questions. So, I mean, the experience is different when you're 15 to 20 to 25, you know, getting your first or second dog. And so, you know, I, I think you're so accountable as a breeder, if you're a good one, and you do business, you know, with ethics and morals, of course, uh, which I, I think most do, honestly, it's too much work to breed these dogs if your intentions aren't there. And sure. the financial reward is there once in a while when it goes well, but believe me, things go wrong. And so it, it, people that think a breeder sitting back counting money, it, it, it's not happening like that. Um, but, you know, t- I'm trying to stay on task with your questions the best no, I nope, can. But, nope, we're good. <laughs> uh, you know, so health and wellness, uh, I think it's, and this is a big one that I'll, I'll be short-winded about, but being honest about your application. Sure. What do I want a dog for? 
Um, I've made this mistake so many times, you know, I'm 36 years old, but I have made this mistake more than most 50 or 60 year olds is I justify a dog sometimes based on an idea that I'm only going to, you know, what I'm really going to duck hunt is five times a year, 10 times a year. But in my mind, I need that, you know, that upper echelon, you know, competitive type of dog. And, and uh, I still agree with that. I think the genetics need to be there, but what, what I will say is, uh, don't, don't get a border collie if you want to sit on the couch and watch TV kind of thing. Um, and I think sure. with these sporting breeds, with these sporting breeds, that's a huge topic that comes up a lot because I'm in the world of field bred retrievers and they're phenomenal pets. They are, they're great family dogs. They're great house dogs. Um, they are intelligent and they also have drive. They also want to do something. And so I think it's, it's my responsibility and, and the people that help me in my kennel, it's our responsibility to make sure that our clients, you know, number one, understand that this is not a, a show bred Labrador for lack of a better term. You know, we're breeding dogs that are supposed to want to retrieve. They're supposed to want to have, you know, they have prey drive, they have working drive, and they're not going to be okay with eight hours a day in the crate and no exercise and no mental stimulation. And, um, they will be at some point once they're trained and, and developed, but so health and wellness, genetics, application, those are all things that I think you have to immediately look at as a breeder and, and kind of whatever your identity is as a program, stick to it, be consistent. Um, because you got to be able to speak to your clients about what it is you're breeding and what you should expect from one of our dogs. You know, do I dabble in other things? Do I have a confirmation golden in my kennel? Yes, I do. Great house dog. She's great with my kids. She's a lot calmer. Um, believe me, she's not so calm that it's a world of difference. It's still a young retriever, but sure. uh, we've recognized, and, and I'm a marketing guy by trade. So what I do in my corporate job kind of translates to my, my kennel. You know, I look at who's buying dogs from us and I try to make sure I'm aligning myself with the best dog, right? I mean, I want 100% placement rate. I don't want dogs coming back. I don't want dogs going into situations where they're not being given that opportunity to be what they should be. Um, and so we really take it seriously, especially some of the people that help us in the kennel, the, the people that help me train part of our team, you know, they participate in other sports. They're in the dock diving. They're in the agility. They're in the nose work, the barn hunt. Uh, we even have some dogs that are learning shed hunting right now. And all that really does is give that dog a job. It's a constructive way to go outside, give that dog exercise, maybe get exercise yourself. Honestly, I mean, my dogs are the reason I get steps in some days. Otherwise, I wouldn't. Um, sure. But, you know, I and I'm, I'm not trying to be unorganized with my answer. But, you know, as a breeder, what am I looking for? I mean, I, I want to give people a dog that's healthy. I want to give people a dog that's trainable. And then ultimately I have to do a better job myself of just making sure that that client is getting the right set of genetics to begin with. You stack the deck in people's favor the best that you can. Right. I mean, right. Absolutely. with your dog too, you had to talk to your breeder. You had that you're with a pretty popular breed there. I mean, they're all over the place, you know, Upland game, they're, especially, but they're, they're a versatile more, breed. They're a versatile breed. They're getting more popular. Mine's a little bit unique situation. I rehomed her at six from a home that, I wouldn't say it was abusive, but she was slightly neglected. She, she's she got her own special case of circumstances and issues sure. that we're working through. I mean, she's older now, but yeah, but you're you're right. She Griffs are definitely becoming a far more popular breed than they, they were. 
but oh, I come from the shoot to retrieve world, you know, the time trials, kill three birds, fastest time wins kind of thing. And, and I got to tell you, I judged a ton of those dogs, uh, sure. you know, and I, I, for a while I was the guy, oh, you know, a wire hair, a Griffon, you know, I, oh, it's all the same. Well, <laughs> no, it's not, um, you know, shame on me. They are slightly different. I mean, I guess you could, I guess in your, I mean, I guess in like the lab world would be like, it's kind of saying like a Chessie's the same. And that's kind of like a lab to Chessie kind of to me is like the Griff versus Drathar. Like it's kind of like, yeah, I'd, I'd go with Drathar with the Chessies. Yeah, I'd go with that one. That's, how that's I'd probably actually an accurate comparison. I don't want to tick anybody <laughs> off, but. No, exactly. Uh, but I learned on Chessies, so I'm allowed to be critical. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean. We, we, we went with, I, I breed these breeds because in my life, that's what I was around. It's, it's what I know. Uh, when I got into the shoot to retrieve game and I was going to grad school at Iowa state and I was living in Iowa, I got exposed to the pointing dog world. And you know what? I love the German short hair. I love English setters. I, I own each. I mean, we, we guide at local preserves and a lot of clients request pointing dogs because it is a, there's a safety element and there are reasons why you'd want a pointer over a flusher in certain situations. Um, so as someone who is involved in several breeds now at this point in my, let's just call it a dog career, if you will. Um, sure. you know, no matter what you're breeding, your, your goals as a breeder is just to, to stay consistent. And, and I'll probably the hardest part about being a breeder. Um, this is still on, on topic here is, um, having that discipline to say, this dog isn't what I want to produce. Sure. You know, this dog ultimately as great of a dog as it is, or, you know, and, and you kind of do that thing that I talk about being honest with yourself about what, what application is your dog going to fill for you? Um, you have to be honest with yourself about the dogs in your kennel. You know, uh, there's a Wisconsin breeder. Uh, his name is it's Josh Miller. He's, he's uh, Riverstone kennels and he's doing an awesome job right now. Cause he has a podcast. He, I think he's with sport dog still, if I'm not mistaken. I met him, uh, at pre-grand training, uh, a couple years ago. And, and I've, I've followed his podcast and his kennel. He he's a uh, English lab guy, but he goes overseas and gets his dogs. I mean, he's all in man. It's, sure, it's sure. impressive. It's impressive. But he said something on his podcast that it stuck with me for, it's been at least a year. He said, a lot of breeders breed the dogs that they have, not the dogs that they want. Sure. And I, I sat back in my chair like, wow, if that's not the truth, I don't know what is, you know, because if you think about it, you know, and I, I'm, I'm lumping myself into this at times, I don't ever breed a dog that I knowingly hate. I mean, I, I wouldn't do that, but I've probably been lenient a time or two because, you know, you, you go all in, we live on 10 acres. We bought a place that had a building on it. I mean, we, we really invested for us. We didn't come from situations where it was easy to do this. We really worked hard to get this place and, and put this plan into motion. So, you know, when you have 30 names on a deposit list and you've got good dogs, the attitude is, well, you know what, this makes sense to do the breeding right now. Let's do it. Um, so, but I could see a lot of people, you know, breeding for the business end. And, and I get that. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and, and fault anybody. I mean, people make a living and pay their bills, how they pay their bills. As long as you're not breeding, you know, junk or bad health or right. knowingly right. doing something unethical, I I can kind of see that. Um, but I mean, when he still, said that, it was profound. Out a quality, they're, they're still putting out a quality dog, but I understand exactly like, the, whole, the whole thing behind that. Like if you're striving for a certain type of dog, you might not be able to get that with the dogs you have. That's right. And 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 you know, for us, we don't have a 45 dog facility. 
you know, my, my place, even if I, if I were to go overboard, I mean, we could probably handle 20 dogs. Um, and at 20, it's still, it's a lot, you know, probably 17, 18 would be perfect. Uh, we, we do not keep two dogs in a kennel ever. Uh, and we, we have some dogs that just at night need to be in a crate overnight because if they're in a big kennel, they might be messy or whatever. So, you know, we have reasons for how we do it, but, uh, when you're talking about limited space, you know, you, you, when you say, Nope, this dog's out, got to get a new one. Well, if you go get a puppy, it's a couple of years before that dog can contribute to your breeding program. So there's a lot of reasons that that dog actually is going to make it into your breeding program. Exactly. And there's that whole thing. Cause as you said, we're going to stack the deck. There's going to be genetics. There's going to be health. You're going to breed for a certain temperament, and that's going to fit what you hopefully want in your profile. But you're not going to really know until you start training and see what this dog is capable of. I mean, you're you're spot on, and I can push the envelope just a little further. You don't always know right away anyway. Uh, sure. There, meaning when you start training, the first six months of training could be really discouraging. The dog's a slow maturing dog. The dog's just taking a while to get their bearings. But then at a year and a half, they start coming on and you're going, I mean, this is a good dog. But they don't all show you the cards at the same time either. So now, I mean, everything I just said is true. And then you've got the wild cards where there's dogs I've sold that at three years old, I regret that decision. And there's dogs that are rock stars up until they're a year, year and a half going through the steps. And then all of a sudden they start plateauing and, and who knows? I mean, they, they go backwards or just, you know, some, some of these dogs are just what makes them special is not just their skills or their intelligence, but think about the drive they have day in and day out to do their work. I mean, their enthusiasm and their will is just, it's a, a working dog. There's nothing like it. You know what I mean? No matter what the breed, what the application is, what their job is. Some dogs just don't have that fire in them to do that work on a day in and day out basis. And honestly, for a lot of people, that's probably okay. You know, for your, for your at home weekend hunter. Absolutely. I mean, that is because having a good off switch for for probably what 70%, 60% of the people out there, that off switch is just as important minimum. And right. I'm probably going low because I'm giving people the, the benefit of the doubt. Right. But, you're stroking all of us family guys that want to hunt 40 percent of the time and don't but But that off switch can be just as important as that drive in the field it's more sure it's more important and it took me five years to learn that as a breeder honestly i I was i mean this whole podcast could be don't fall in love with pedigree don't overshoot you know what you think you're gonna do do you need a puppy out of two akc field champions i mean (laughs) It doesn't hurt. And sure. yeah, yeah, when that's the litter that I'm looking at. But I, I have to be honest with you, some of the best dogs that I have, some of the best dogs that I've ever trained, they're out of two hunt test dogs that are full-time house dogs and have what you just said, you know. Um, but but don't misconstrue that to believe that some of your top all-age field trial level dogs in the retriever world specifically are not phenomenal house dogs because that would be a lie. Sure. Um, what I, what I have found, Brad, honestly, is that the people that do things right, the people that put the time in and develop that puppy the right way and stay consistent and, and dedicated, just like anything else in life, just go figure. It turns out pretty good usually, you know? And so some of your top dogs in any discipline, the common denominator, other than the obvious, you know, yeah, genetics are probably good, et cetera. It's, it's good owners. It's people that are dedicated to that dog and see it through. And, 
you know, I don't think you need to have a field champion to have a great puppy, but you know, that field champion withstood years and years of training and development and being challenged. And it, it developed into a dog that could communicate with a handler on a level that would blow people's minds. And uh, just the skills are, are second to none, but it probably still sleeps in bed with them at night, honestly. So they can all do it. Um, and that's why I said, you know, be honest with yourself about what, what it is you want in your dog, because everybody loves the idea of a dog. Not everybody loves the reality of a dog, which is, you know, everyone jokes about young kids. Can we get this puppy dad? Can we get this puppy? And two weeks later, they're, they're over it. Well, even us as adults, even us as adults that put six months of research in and go put a deposit down and go through the process, you know, a year into it, you're like, man, you know, I mean, it's a lot. We spend, you know, uh, I have young kids now. I mean, yeah, I don't even know how many hours a year I'm in a field, but every night after work, every Saturday, every Sunday we were training. And then we're on the road at these hunt tests. And anyone that'll tell you about a hunt test, I don't know. Do you do it with your pointing dog? I have not. um, I did train with. So when I first rescued my lab, my lab was also a rescue. I got him at a year old. Um, Not really rescue, another rehome type of deal. I don't know. I wound up driving out of state to get dogs that need a home. Just kind of my forte, I guess. Um, I wound up having no idea what I was doing, trying to figure out this crazy dog that had zero for basic obedience and like trying to like wrap my head around this. And I saw a guy in the middle of duck season training his lab in a field of a park, like doing blind retreats. So I stopped and talked to him. He turned out he was the president of a local HRC. Wow. So I wound up actually training under his wing in his own personal time for months like him showing me like different ways. And, and we both came to the same conclusion. We just had to back it all the way up to like, think this dog was like a puppy. And we started with basic obedience from the beginning. So I got really lucky. So I never got into the test world at that point in time. I, I didn't have enough time to really dedicate to it between work and everything else. And like, mm-hmm. I just, I fo- I had my 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the afternoon to like do my basic. And then I lived on the farm at that time. So we did a bunch of running and conditioning and a bunch of stuff like that. But I didn't have the time or really even the financial means at that point to like join a club. And then like, re- and they're not even that expensive at that point in time for me, it was kind of a lot of money to go join a club and then drive an hour to their facility, like the gas, the fuel, like I just, at that point in my life, I couldn't afford it. So I never got into the hunt tests. That, that's really my reason. My whole long-winded explanation there is like the timing just never really worked out. But training with him, I could like the benefits of a club are just so big. Like if you're I, I, to train on your own. I fully endorse joining a club if you can. Uh, we are not part of a club in terms of being members because just the way that I came up in this sport, I have there's ten or eleven of us who are literally day in and day out training together. So we, we kind of have our own club. Sure. Um, and we could be criticized for not joining a, a real club and, and volunteering and, you know, and I, I own that, but we're running a breeding program. We're running a kennel. So our priority is our dogs. That's selfish, but we don't have brood bitches in our kennel. Every dog in our kennel can run at at least an intermediate level in some discipline, if not a finished level or a master level. Uh, and they hunt and they guide it preserves and it's, it's real. I mean, you can come here and watch any one of my dogs and I'll, I'll demo all of them if you want. I don't have, so that takes time. And, and so I don't spend sure. my weekends volunteering at events. 
Uh, and now I have two small kids. So my hunt test days have definitely been less than usual. But my point to you when I said it was, if you're running two dogs in an AKC master test, and that's, I mean, I love it. I, I absolutely love the game, but um, you're sitting there Friday, Saturday, Sunday to run three series. So, I mean, in total, you're running your dog like 12 to 13 minutes sometimes total for the weekend. If you pass each series and you sit there for three days, you sure. know, and it could be 90 degrees out and and I can sit in a camping chair and watch 45, 50 dogs run. I, I mean, that's fine. I, I love it. Um, but it's not for everyone. And, and, you know, when you're in the breeding side of things, these titles do matter. I think it's important to prove what a dog, what kind of level they can run on. I think it shows trainability. I think it shows a lot of qualities that if you read between the lines, translate into a good pet as well. Sure. Um, but for a guy that wants to duck hunt, I think what you said is more important. I think let's get the right puppy. Let's find the right breeder, the right support system to help you get started. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And then a club or a group of people who are dedicated at training at minimum, that's the answer. You know, a, a higher trained field dog is a more enjoyable pet at the end of the day. It's a better trained animal, period. Agreed. I mean, like the basic obedience, like just as simple as the basic obedience, we strive, the level we strive for basic with a, with a dog, with a hunting breed is a lot of times far more than any other like house pet you're ever going to see. Oh, which yeah. Makes for, I mean, I mean, it's as simple as how many times has someone gone over to someone's house and their dog ran out the front door and they can't get the dog back. That's not going to happen with a hunting dog. Like, no. if, as, I mean, if you have a solid basic obedience, you're either going to sit the dog or bring it right back. It doesn't really matter, but the dog's going to listen to you or the dog's not going to run out the door to begin with. I mean, well, it depends yeah. like... <laughs> I mean, and, and not to beat a dead horse here, but I just went to Kansas uh, in January and, you know, I have a couple pointing dogs, as I've alluded to here. And sure. I really wanted a chance to turn them loose and watch them run in open country and look for quail. And granted, I don't have wild quail here, so that's much harder than it sounds with dogs that don't get to see a lot of quail. You know, you do it in training, but it's not the same thing. Um, but, I mean, I was staying at a lodge right on the main drag of a town in Kansas where there's just trucks and cars going by like crazy. And I have an English pointer out just going to the bathroom, eating, drink, whatever I have to do at night, chores wise, before we go to bed, that's a dog that's kind of known for, you know, running off and never coming back. And that dog is just sitting at my side, going to the bathroom, doing her thing, listening under complete control because why? Well, because she's been trained, you know, right. and because if you're going to be on the road, you, you, you know, you're going to be, whether you're a hunter or a competitor or a hunt tester, it doesn't matter you're going to be in a little postage stamp lot of grass trying to get your dog to go to the bathroom at a motel at nine 30 at night. And that's pretty hard to do when they aren't, you know, trained to a certain level. I mean, I can walk my dogs into a hotel lobby and get a room, you know, to run a, a, a test or a trial the next morning. And so that's, what's so cool about this sport is we focus so much on the field, but honestly, just the level of enjoyment of a pet that, as you said, just listens and is obedient. And, and not only because they've been trained to, but because they're that bonded with you from all the work and the time. And that's a huge thing too, is that bond. I mean, like when I rehomed my grip at six, that's the first thing we went to is we went to just a basic obedience for pressures. And that was really the best way I could think in my mind is to create that bond between us is just that consistent training, just her and I, knowing so that way there she learned what i expected of her i got a good read on what her abilities were and we built off of that and 
we created that bond much later in life. And that bond is as strong as it was with my, got my lab at a year. I mean, Absolutely. just from that repetitive training. No doubt about it. And, and so like, like I said, I mean, to me, we're, we're starting something here this spring in April. We, we have this, you know, Upland Academy or Gundog Academy, whatever you want to call it, where we work with a local preserve that I'm a member at and that we, we hunt at all year and we use their grounds and we're able to have birds on hand and, you know, we really try to get a lot of our clients out in kind of a group setting. And the whole idea is really puppy basics. But this way we can help everybody with that early stage of group socialization, get them out in the cover, get them on, you know, bird and gun intro type of stuff, which is one of the most feared steps in all of dog sure. training. And so if we can help people get through that, I mean, honestly, if you have a dog that will retrieve birds, gunfire doesn't bother them. The prey drive is there depending on what level of standards you have they're, they're kind of ready to hunt if you're just kind of a meat dog weekend hunter because that's the common gun dog i mean if you go out to a duck blind across the country in december and start looking at everybody's retrievers what percentage of them are akc master hunters hunting retriever champions in the hrc how many of them ran the grand i mean you're talking a fraction sure sure there's a ton of them that are just you know they're like chained to the blind they shoot the ducks and they they unhook the dog and let them go and that's very common. So my point is if the dog's not afraid of the gun, retrieves, it has all that basics, at least now our our clients are, are going out and hunting with a dog that's at least, you know, it's safe to have them out there, I guess. I mean, when I say safe, I, I you need some obedience, you need control. But right. so we're putting that together. And a lot of the questions I get are, well, I'm not a hunter. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. There's nothing wrong with your dog being introduced to birds and guns. Uh, if anything, it's just a socialization thing. You know, they're going to sure. be more confident. They're going to be more environmentally sound. I mean, that that's a benefit to you in a household that has nothing to do with if you hunt or not. And so to me, it's just dogs need jobs. Dogs need dedicated owners. Dogs need activity, you know, and it's not just physical activity. Everyone thinks, oh, I'm going to fence in my yard and turn the dog loose for three hours and he'll just sleep all night. Well, maybe, but I doubt it. You know, that yeah, they, I mean, they don't get that mental stimulation they're, they're, right. i mean they'll get they'll play they'll play by themselves a little bit right they'll run around a little bit maybe chase yeah but chase it doesn't center work. On, but no i mean you need that mental that mental stimulation is what really wears a dog out in my opinion at least yeah I mean, hide, their, yeah, hide their food around hide their toys you know that's what shed hunt i mean bird hunting and shed hunting are not that different you're you're right. quartering an area you're looking for a scent that you're kind of imprinted on and you know certainly a bird is a different reaction once you find it but that kind of thing, you know, I mean, I tell people all the time and I went to school for a long time with a master's and everything. So it's a, I, just a fitting analogy, but the days I was the most tired, it wasn't when I had practice or training or the gym. It was when I sat in four classes in a row and just had to think and listen, you know, and, sure. and I think dogs are very similar. Um, but nonetheless, I just think all the field is my outlet, of course. And I'm, I'm just kind of, I live in that, that arena, but, um, you know, go do dock diving. I don't care what you do. Just just get into a sport, get into an activity and take your handling to another level and it, you won't regret it. I mean, you you just won't. Yeah, because you also, like we said, we, you create that bond. You get a dog that's just a well, better behaved dog. That, and a tired dog is a happy dog, in my opinion, right? A tired dog isn't a destructive dog. Like I see people like, oh, my dog's doing, I'm like, when was the last time you actually exercised your dog? Well, I take him for a walk. I'm like, well, that's good. When was the last time you like gave him a challenge though? When was the last time you tried to teach him something new and like really tried to like make this dog 
think and strive to something different. Well, we haven't done that since we like, which since I taught him sit, well, teach him, teach him a new skill, like yeah. work with your dog. Well, and you're really, you're hitting on the, the next step with, with just puppies in general. I mean, uh, it's truly amazing. And granted in the dog training world, I'm still probably on the middle to younger side of the equation, but look at what they're doing with puppies now. I mean, it used to be, especially the old school gun dog guys, it was get a well-bred puppy for sure buy the best genetics you can afford. I think that advice still holds true, but you put it in a kennel for six months. And then when it's got its adult teeth and it's older, then we'll start getting it out and seeing what it's made of. Well, I mean, anymore, what they have four and five month old puppies doing is to most people beyond finish level obedience. And these puppies sure. are capable of incredible. I mean, and that's probably my biggest demise is just a full-time worker with a family and a kennel and, you know, just making time for all the dogs in general, let alone like new puppies when you're training two or three of them. And you're, you, it's that time in the living room, just teaching them and shaping their behavior and the idea of how we use treats and, that's a whole nother conversation. I can't even go through the, I don't even know how to cliff note that for you. Right. But right. These so let's, like, like let's try to, stuff. So let's try, let's touch base on that just a little bit. So yeah, you, you kind of figured out, you selected your breeder, you you're working with a, with a breeder that's established and has some sort of health clearances and things along those lines. And you know, they're dedicated to a program, right? Let's just leave it as they're dedicated to a program. You get your puppy home. How long, when do you start the training? Like, do you start right away or yeah. do you like let them be a puppy for a little bit? Well, it's, it, the answer is both. I mean, sure. Um, the level of standards that you have are, are when I say low, what I'm saying is that puppy's not going to know six commands necessarily in a day. But loosely speaking, if you understand how to, you know, we just use their kibble as a treat. And so sure. the, the first thing is to just get that puppy to understand that they can get food right out of your hand. They start focusing on you more. They start following your hand around, you know, following that food. And with that, think about how powerful that is. You know, think about getting a puppy up onto a place board. If they follow the food up there and then they get a piece of kibble every time all four paws are on that place board, it's not long before the puppy runs and stands there waiting for a reward. And sure. I'm talking, I'm talking eight weeks old, seven weeks old. Um, if you think about that, we just shaped a behavior without really training. I didn't give a command yet. I'm just shaping behavior using his food drive and curiosity more than anything and willingness to work for it. Uh, and then you, you know, when you raise your hand up, they kind of naturally put their butt down and sit. And now you've got sure. place and sit and then they can lay down for the treat. And I don't even know that I'm using commands for the first few weeks. So when you say, when do I start right away? Am I doing finish level, you know, commands right. uh, sooner than you might think, but no, not right away. Um, you know, you're housebreaking, you're crate training, you're getting the lay of the land, the routine down. Um, all and that's that an important one before we, before we skip too much past. I mean, that's an important one. Some people are hesitant about, but crate training is huge. I mean, I don't I'm, understand I'm, how people don't, I, I'm sounding one dimensional, but other than the obvious housebreaking, Okay. They don't want to soil where they're sleeping. So if they're in a smaller crate where they can turn around, lay down, be safe, comfortable, et cetera, uh, we need to develop that, that routine of, okay, you go potty when we go outside and there's more to that. But the, the next thing is number one, there's or number two, their safety. Um, right. they'll chew, they'll destroy, they can ingest things. 
and you can say you're watching your puppy, but you know how easy it is to turn your head for one second and they're four rooms away eating Lord knows what. Um, right. You're talking you're talking thousands of dollars at a veterinary and you're talking potential health hazards, you know, death, illness, major surgeries. So the crate is definitely a way to keep your puppy safe when you're not supervising, especially. Um, and, and, and I'll, I am not a dog behaviorist. Okay. But anyone that trains dogs is sort of in tune with, with behavior related issues. Dogs that do not learn how to go in a crate, turn it off, self-soothe a little bit, calm down. You're talking separation anxiety. You're talking dogs that they, they learn how to be the ringleader real quick. If they whine and bark, they get let out. So you're reinforcing this bossy behavior, this demanding behavior of a dog. And I'm not, I'm not using correct terms, but I think. Right, I, right. Um, so the crate, the crate is a great way to teach a dog. Hey, I know I'm right here in the kitchen, you know, whether you're reading your mail or whatever, and the dog sees you and he starts whining. Well, sorry, buddy, you're on a routine, you know, in about 20 minutes, we're going outside, but you don't give into that. Well, that dog learns to just kind of calm down, lay down. Even if you're in the room, they're not barking and going crazy. And you can leave them for an hour or two at a time and go to the grocery store, run some errands, but nobody wants to do that. Oh, I can't lock my dog up. It's, it's cruel. Well, a year later, you have a dog that you can't leave alone. Right. They, they don't want to be without you. And, and that all sounds great and wonderful, but if they're barking or being destructive or doing other negative things, that all kind of goes back to crate training. I mean, maybe not directly, but it's very closely related in my opinion. And the crate should be a safe place. I mean, that's another, I mean, my grip, she'll, when she's had enough for the day, she'll just go lay down in her crate. Like she'll, there's other spots she'll lay. Don't get me wrong. But when she's had enough, she'll just go lay down in her crate and she'll just go to sleep. And like, that's her safe place. Always has that, Then it was introduced properly. I would assume, right. you know, I right. mean, it's not a place, it's not a place for timeout. You're not sending them there as punishment. We feed our puppies in the crate the first few weeks because that's the most positive association you can give an eight week old puppy is food. If I'm in sure. here and I get fed, that's great. And you're going to notice me say that a lot because I'm a big proponent of, of using the drive for food in all of your early training. I mean, dogs work for food you know, pack animals, coyotes, wolves, they hunt in packs, they work for their food. It's a very primitive instinct that they still have as domesticated animals. But uh, I feed them in the crate. So that becomes number one, it's a positive association, but a closely related number two is how easy is it to teach the kennel command when they follow their dish in there? Right, right. You know, kennel, and they go in there and they get a jackpot of food, a whole bowl. Um, it's not long before they'll just, I mean, so your original question, when do you start training by eight, nine, 10 weeks of age, you have puppies that will get on place boards, sit for kibble and load in their kennel almost on command. And you're talking 10 weeks old. And then you think years ago, people waited six months to start anything. Right. So think about how behind the curve, a lot of, think of how great some of these dogs are now, because by the time they're six and eight months old, they're unbelievably obedient and it just shows what they're capable of. Uh, I would recommend look up a guy named Pat Nolan. Um, he's a, just a world renowned dog trainer in general, but he's been involved in other types of animal training. I'm talking like dolphins at SeaWorld type of stuff. And this guy has fascinating material out there about puppies being socialized at young ages to the work they're going to do as adults. 
and the differences they see. I mean, this guy works with the military and special forces type of dogs that they they put an earpiece in a Malinois ear and a guy in another country can give that dog commands on a, on the earpiece and the dog will do what he says, climbing, crawling down a hallway, hiding behind this, all through remote uh, communication. There's not even a handler there. And that's crazy if you really think about it, because I mean, how much training do we do that have visual cues? I mean, so exactly. much of our training is visual. So to be able to do that all just off of audio commands is incredible. I'm sure it starts that way, of course. Right, right. But the, the bottom line is this is a guy that's, you know, well, along with others, I, I'm, there's plenty, but think of the boundaries they're pushing, the conventional sure. dog training, you know, criteria that we all follow, that we all learn from someone. These guys are taking puppies at super young ages and they're proving that they're capable of a lot of adult type of. Now, it's different. You can't you can't have the negative reinforcement on the same level. But they're using a lot of positive and behavioral shaping stuff. But it, dogs are habitual learners. I mean, once they learn something, they they default to it. And that's a good and a bad thing. In fact, I've had people tell me house dogs are at greater risk of learning bad behaviors because around the clock, their actions are being reinforced or not, knowingly or not. You know, there's days I'm in, if I'm in a good mood and my dog were to jump up on the counter, I'd probably pet him on the head and laugh about it because I just don't even think about it. And then the next day he does it and I shove him down and tell him no. Well, that's very inconsistent. A house dog gets that every day. Some days you reinforce behaviors without knowing it. Some days, you know, you're actually conscious of it and you're trying to hold them to a higher standard. Uh, that's how, how quickly they learn and their influence. So it's, uh, there's a lot to it. And I think that's why it's so important with puppies. But, but again, I'm a huge proponent of rescue actually, believe it or not. And so when I hear your story, um, it's, it's doable with any dog at any age. I mean, they, they can all be trained and, and again, you need to understand what it is you're after. What is your life right. like? And, you know, certain breeds have innate qualities that will make them easier or harder for you as an individual, depending on what your goal is. So you need to read that stuff. You need to do your research. Yes, a breeder, but a breed, right? Or narrow right. down to a couple breeds. Um, and some breeds are easier and some breeds are easier to train than others. I mean, absolutely. They, they, they really are. I mean, I've jokingly, like I've said in other podcasts with guys that have, are far more experienced grip trainers than I have, and we've kind of agreed, like, it's probably not the greatest first dog to train because okay. they're, re- they're they're kind of unique. Like the best way I heard it is from a trainer far better than me. His name was, his name is George DaCosta. Um, he said, you need a white, you need a heavy hand and a white glove. And really what he's saying is you need consistency. Like they're super smart. So they almost train stubborn, but at heart, they're kind of on the softer side. Like they're not soft dogs by any means. Like, like they have a ton of drive, but they don't handle high pressure well all the time as a consistent thing for the breed. Whereas like I made mistakes in my lab. I'll admit it. I was a young trainer and I had some bad days. Like, and, and I wouldn't say I took it out on him, but him and I didn't have a great training session or end on a positive note. And after we made up, like he didn't care. He forgot about it. He's like, whatever, let's get back on task. Let's, let's just go do something. Whereas I can't make that mistake with her because she'll remember. So, I mean, yeah, well, I just, I, the reason you and I relate to have this conversation is because I was up at a pro trainer in Burlington, Wisconsin, and we were working pointing dogs tonight. And this is a 40 year trainer hall of fame type national level handler of pointing dogs, but he's an all breed trainer. And I love talking to him because he's got so many credentials in retrievers, spaniels, 
pointers. And he said exactly what you just said. I mean, the labs, the short hairs, they'll always be popular because they're forgiving. They, they have that nature of, even if you're hard on them tomorrow, they still want to do it. Now, Goldens, Chessies, apparently Correct. the Griffs, they have plenty of drive. They have plenty of talent. It's all there and tough enough, but they take it personal. They have, they have more feelings, I guess. And, and I've noticed it with our Goldens and I hate stereotyping because I've had plenty of Goldens that they do not train any different. You just do it. I think, Brad, in my opinion, and this is coming from a guy who I was a little heavier in my earlier days as a trainer, I'll admit it. Um, I think we've evolved just as human, let's say trainers, handlers. Sure. The technology's there. There's so many more people who have pioneered this sport and come up with methods and systems. And um, we don't need heavy pressure to teach dogs. And I, I, I know labs are known for being forgiving, but I have so many labs that I've seen that do not handle heavy pressure. So I don't care what anyone sure. says about, Oh, they're forgiving. They're this heavy handed training will always probably give you the lowest percentage of dogs that, that make it through the program and, and succeed. You know, I, I can't help but think about how many phenomenal dogs were washed out because they were not trained, you know, in line with their personality or their demeanor. Um, I think heavy pressure is fine once the dog is conditioned for the pressure and the, the correct response. And it's a taught thing. Heavy pressure on a dog that understands why is far different than a dog that's being trained heavily from the beginning. Sure, um, because, sure. you know, and everybody says, oh, this dog is soft. Oh, this dog is sensitive. Are you sure or are they unsure and it's coming across that way? And and typically everyone's response to a dog clamming up is more pressure, which now you just manifested the whole thing into 10 times worse of a scenario than it was five minutes ago. Um, I'm still learning how to read that myself. And so to me, I'd rather just go slow. And again, you asked about training puppies. Let's just start there. Right. Shape behaviors, build good habits. When a dog understands what's being asked of them, bringing pressure in later tends to go over pretty well. Because again, I have and dogs. That was, a key that, thing. that was a key thing you just said there. And that's so huge. And that's something I struggled with is when the dog understands what you want from them. Not, when you, mean, not, when, you think, not when you just think they understand. Like you can see like as, you, as your training progresses as a new trainer, you'll think, oh, my dog understands it. But you'll see there's really a difference between when, like I noticed that between when I thought they got it and when he actually got it. I wish there was a way to bottle that and te and, and like hand it to people you know, here. Here's the real understanding of does the dog know it or don't they? And it's something I'm improving at too. Okay. I mean, I, I've made every mistake under the sun, but you will see it in the dog's behavior. So again, it's so important with your puppies, you know, and, and regardless of what kind of genetics they're out of, but get those habits because I think the best example, Brad, honestly, is probably the e-collar, you know, sure. coming, coming in and, and, and that's a controversial topic still today, even though the e-collar has come a long way. And I think the education's there now, and, and there's a lot of great products, but ultimately it's one of those things that it's a, it's a tool to reinforce what a dog already knows. And it does give you some extended control, you know, beyond a leash or a check cord or, um, and, and this is all surface level, but 
if a dog is truly ready to be collar conditioned on their obedience commands, then on lead, they should be pretty sharp, pretty crisp. When I say sit, it's a, it's a boom. The, the, the butt hits the ground. They sit, they wait. They're not moving the second you move or the minute you say something. They're, they're sitting firmly through distractions, all of it. And then you go ahead and bring that collar in. And if you use, whether it's a slip lead or a choke chain or a prong collar, I don't care what, it, whatever, you know, that e-collar ultimately is taking the place of that, that training collar that they were using with the lead. And so it should mean the same thing. And, and again, to your point, it, it won't be this big dramatic thing for the dog. Right. You know, and so and that's, retreat- such a, and that's such a simple concept. If, if you think about it, if you break, like all an e-collar does is enforcing a known command and basically you're replacing the leash or whatever tool you were enforcing that command with. And I think that gets lost a lot. We could have a whole episode just on e-collars. I know. Yeah. But I think yeah. that really gets lost a lot because I see time and time again posts on Facebook. I'm thinking about getting an e-collar because my dog isn't doing this. Well, that's not going to fix it. Yeah, well, I've, have- I've told people that. Don't even you're asking the wrong question, bud. I mean, right? You got to go back through and get this behavior licked way before you throw. And and unfortunately, I mean, I, it's such a common thing, and I don't know where it came from. I really don't. But it, people talk about behavior and then go, "Well, just throw an e collar on him and get him when he does it. You'll fix it." Well, holy cow! I mean, that's a loaded, you know, gun right. waiting to explode. I, I don't know. And, and people do it in the field. It's like. Well, my dog doesn't come back, so I put a collar on him, and when he flushed a pheasant and I missed and he ran to the horizon, I zapped him. It's like words like zap in the first place are why these <laughs> collars are so widely right. hated by a lot of people. But um, you just condition that dog to potentially associate that correction with a bird. Right, right. And which you want huge, a bird dog, is- so what don't you get here? I mean, it's very rare. There's only a couple of circumstances I've ran into personally where I've ever used a collar intentionally for a negative enforcement, right? Like a porcupine. We ran into a porcupine and I hit my grip hard as soon as she saw it because I wanted, I, like, I don't want her to ever associate that smell with a good thing because there's I way mean, more to my, which my, my grip is terrified of a vet where we have to sedate her and muzzle her. A porcupine to the face is literally worst case scenario for her and I. Because well, now not, it's not to now, mention what's the risk at that point. I mean, if right. she hates porcupines after that, I guess mission accomplished. And that was really what my thought process was there. Cause I don't want a positive interaction ever with a, with a porcupine. And but here's I what I will her- say. Here's what I will say. Just, just being devil's advocate. So to nope, speak, you're good. I understand completely. And I would have done the same thing, but let's just look at where we could have gone wrong. If you have a dog that you collar conditioned on obedience, and I don't know what collar you run, it doesn't matter. Let's say it goes one through eight, okay? And everything you did was on a one or a two, you know, to reinforce here and sit. And uh, if you will broke your dog with flank pressure or belly collar, fine, no problem. But then to light them up on a seven or an eight with a porcupine when they've never been conditioned to a higher level of stimulation on things that they know, you still have a risk there. Because it's happening out in the field. It's happening in a hunting scenario. You're carrying guns. You're wearing gear. That sure. is different than everyday training. My dogs, I swear, just through experience, they, they know the difference. So if a dog gets overly corrected in the field, they could be a little sheepish in the field because all those things are fair game to be associated with. They're associative learners, cause and effect learners. If, if this, then this. So... If you're in your orange vest carrying your gun and you light them up on a porcupine, the logic's there. I would do it too. But now she might not want to quarter and get out and search because 
she doesn't know why she make, said it. Yeah, I don't want that to happen again. So it's it's now still, I will say I didn't roll up that I didn't roll it up like she's normally at how what is it like a three or a four. I only went to like I only went like one or two. I think I went two levels higher than normal. Like it wasn't some like max out like continuous good. all the way back. But it a lot was, of people will a, do that. Right. It was a strong enough shock where like she yelped and turned and came back to me and I let go pressure instantly then. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, it was if, if to, it worked out, and, that's fine. And, and I think that's it everybody. Did, but I know exact and I know exactly what you're saying though, because there's always a risk when you take it is a gamble. Now is it a educated gamble? Kind of. Is could it have gone wrong? And like what if there was a bird there? There was a possibility. Maybe there's a bird there too. I don't know. We're out grouse hunting. There that could have been suck. a grouse there. <laughs> that and would be what? very now unfortunate she... luck right. if there was. But I mean, my point is, is collar conditioning is one thing, but it's it's still it's still about knowledge. Let's say right. collar conditioned is what. Okay, if you can say here with a a nick on a two and the dog is proficient and just 100 comes in heals or does whatever your dog's supposed to do. Is, are they collar conditioned? Well, they're definitely started on it. But can you go up to a three or a four or a five on here and turn the pressure off when they come to you? And even though they don't, they didn't do anything wrong. You're not turning it up to punish them. But you do have to condition them for the levels of stimulation that they may face. So if you ever think you may need to give that dog more pressure, or if a dog is a repeat offender of, of something that you need to correct, because in retriever training, you know, we sit them on a whistle on a blind retrieve and we give a cast, right? If the sure. dog takes the wrong cast the first time, I just blow the whistle again and give them a chance to, you know, right their wrong. I don't apply pressure right then and there, but if they do it a second or a, a third time, there will be a correction. I will sit them and I will administer just a, a nick, you know, like, which just means, Hey, no, pay attention here. We're going to do this. And if you get multiple offenses in a row, there's a chance you turn that collar up, but just remember I'm turning the collar up because my dog has been taught what that means. They've been taught that when the intensity goes up, it just, it's a more meaningful correction. And I need a change in behavior. I need you to take the right cast or I need something. If you don't have that level of communication with your dog, with your collar conditioning, this conversation gets kind of iffy because it is unpredictable how some of them will take it. You can't surprise them on a five if they've only been run on a two. And and stim level shouldn't be as big of a topic as it is anyway, because if you can get by with a two, it makes no difference. If a dog takes a five to respond, then then fine, use a five. Right. And, but and who cares? Using, right. And you're using those levels just as an example, right? Because if your dog yeah. responds on a two, you're going to train them up to a five. And I never thought about something that way. I, I really, I'll admit, I have never thought about doing that. Because I've always been like of that school of thought where if your dog responds on a two, you use a two. If your dog responds on a seven, because that's just what your dog does, sure. right? Well, then, then then it's on a seven. Let me let me throw this at you because I think the way you're thinking about it is how most people do. And and 90% of the time you're right, which is why it doesn't become an issue for most. But just remember, you know, when you train alone in your yard and your dog does everything perfect, but then you go to show all your friends at the barbecue and the dog doesn't do it with distractions. Just remember recall out at the park versus recall when they're chasing a wounded bird or, you know, they're, they're flying, they're going towards a, a flying bird and getting near a road. A lot of dogs are seeing red at that point. They're not hearing the recall whistle. They're not listening. So 
you may have to intervene with a little higher pressure, especially if their safety's on the line, but it's unfair if they don't understand what that means and why and how to turn that pressure off. Just because they do it at a two forever doesn't mean if you light them up on an eight, you're going to get the same response. So it's, and with the pointing dogs, I would argue it is just slightly different because I'm not, I'm not handling them on a blind retrieve. Now your breed being a versatile breed, there's a lot of people running your kind of breed on blind retrieves and in NAVDA. And so, you know, to me, it's all one and the same. And and going back to the club thing, I did actually do some training stuff with NAVDA, not with my dog. I went there before I even got her to like meet the people at the club to get a good idea what the club was like to make sure it'd be a good fit, not only for me, but if I brought a dog into it, we never made it there because one of the issues I'm still working out with my dog is she is very, very aggressive with other dogs. Oh, very aggressive. So a club situation with her just wasn't going to be fair to her, right? It wasn't going to be fair, especially with other dogs there, but let's not even, I'm not, I'm worried about their safety. Yes. I'm more worried about her anxiety because she's my dog. She's my responsibility. And I wasn't going to put her in a situation where that would, it wouldn't be beneficial for training. If she's on high alert, high anxiety level, because she has such a problem, like she has a huge fear of other dogs, especially any dog bigger than her. I don't, I never, like I, in my mind, I was like, what am I going to accomplish here if I'm working only on that and I'm not working on anything else? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's fair. Plus you just, why risk anything? Right. Um, yeah, I hear you. I mean, and, and you know what, that's not anything to her, her past could be part of that. You don't know, but I'll tell you what, there's just certain, a lot of those breeds, a lot of labs, a lot of goldens. There, there's examples of that everywhere. Even if you got her as a puppy, that could have been how she is. You know, and, maybe and I'm not. I'm not blaming the guy beforehand. Maybe that was just her. You're right. I don't know that, but it just wasn't. It didn't seem like the right choice for me to train with the club for that reason. But I, I do want to like training with a club can just be so big, though it really is. And I really wish because the one thing you mentioned is like the backyard barbecue and the distractions, right? It's mm-hmm. really hard to set up training by yourself unless you have maybe a, a good group of friends or something like that where you can set up these training scenarios to put the distractions into it, right? Like fake hunt tests, like fake hunting scenarios. Because your dog can be super steady in the park when you're throwing bumpers at the baseball diamond, right? But you put them out in the blind with the retrieving and the calling and even how much more excited, like, because they feed off your body language I and mean, ducks are working in, like, like look at the videos of a, a safety clicking on a gun and the dog's heads up, right? I mean, they get yeah. all these cues. And if you're not training for that scenario, it's really hard for, to make a steady dog, in my opinion. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, we're, we're here to talk about puppies. And again, it goes back to the place board and the things that I was telling you about. I think what we've learned over the years is it's one thing to train the dog, but it's another thing to to test it and push it and make and reinforce that taught behavior with, you know, what, what do they say? The distance and distractions will erode control. So telling a dog to sit on lead at two feet from you and telling them to sit 10 feet away and telling them to sit 30 feet away or sit on a whistle at a hundred yards, that's still all based on the sit command, but how far do you take it? How much distance do you put between you and the dog? And then you add distractions. So, this is why I think, I mean, for anyone getting puppies, I don't care where you get them from, what you get them for. The puppy classes are great because just getting them in that environment is never going to hurt anything. It might have helped your dog as a youngster to be in a group setting. I don't know. Um, I don't either. 
but you could have also maybe seen precursors to this behavior when she was 12 pounds and easy to correct. And you could have done things to discourage that behavior and rewarded her turning that off and doing something else. And you could have made a dent in it and fixed it. Um, could you do we it have now? made a little dent? What well, we have actually made a little dent. Um, I, I have got her to the point now where she'll vocalize first and normally turn away. So okay. it gives me enough time to get in there now. I know it's crazy. Like don't ever break up a dog fight, right? Yeah. We're just going to put that out there. Um, <laughs> I have just whatever. Um, but now I've got her to the point where she will at least vocalize and turn away, which gives me normally enough time to remove her from whatever the situation is or get in between her and the dog. I mean, which is a huge step because beforehand it was teeth on. Well, it's good that you know that, you know, I mean, dude, this happens everywhere. And, sure. and make no mistake about it. I've seen it at a retriever hunt test where the honor dog goes right out there and bites the working dog to get the duck. I've seen it. I was in the holding by watching when it happened. There, there's temperament. There's sociability issues. You don't know the root cause. And, and to your credit, you're still working on it. You know, it, the biggest thing, honestly, is if you and a, and a couple buddies want to put three, four dogs on the ground and go chase pheasants, you have to be mindful of of that. And so and that's, that, that's, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. But the most important thing is that dog ended up in a great home and you do these things with her and, and that's really all that matters, but, and you'll get more dogs in the future. You know, you will, exactly. you'll, you're a lifelong hunter and fisherman. You're going to have a sporting dog of some kind. It's just who we are. It's part of life. Exactly. exactly. Um, and, and I enjoy the training. I do. I mean, and I think that, yeah. I mean, I don't think you have to like enjoy, like I actually like find therapy, like, if I can get myself in the, I have to get myself in the right mental state of mind, which I've learned how to do over the years to like put my focus on the dog, leave my other stuff behind. And when I get to that point, when we're done, it's such a huge like therapy session for me at the end of it too. Cause now I've only focused on her at this point in training. And then when everything's said and done, like all that other problems I have are kind of like, I kind of forgot about them all. For sure. I, man, it's addicting. We're all, all of us that do this, love it. I mean, the people that I'm around are diehards. If we have a spare minute, we do another drill. Sure. I mean, it's, and I have some buddies who make me look like I don't even like the sport. That's how obsessed they are. Uh, but it's, you know what? I mean, if you're going to have dogs, the best thing you can do is involve them in your life as much as possible. You'll have a better dog. You know, I, I joke with everyone. It's my only vice. It really is. I mean, I'm, I'll drink socially. I don't smoke. We're not at the bar. My wife and I are not big bar flies. Um, we'll go with you if there's a function, but you know, it's not, sure. this sure. is what I do. This is how I spend my money poorly. This is how I spend my time. <laughs> it's, it's truly my, my worst habit, but there are far worse things you could be doing. So, I mean, it's, it's uh it's a ton of fun. I, I think, I think everybody's, I don't know what it is. It, it seems like there's a lot more litters of puppies out there. You know, it seems like there's more and more breeders coming out of the woodwork. I, maybe it's an illusion of of money. Maybe it's an illusion of side money, side hustle kind of thing. It's a bad economy. People want to make a few bucks. I I don't know. Um, I hope it's a it's a good thing. It, it sure seems like you can throw a stick in any direction in the breed that I'm in. I mean, there's labs everywhere. Sure. Um, you know what? And most of them probably are pretty good, which is, which is fine. As long as there's a, a line out the door of responsible homes that are going to take these puppies and do the right things. I'm, I'm fine with it, but, um, yeah, I mean, 
I, I don't know if if I could tell anybody with, with in terms of just getting a puppy. I mean, even if you don't go to a high caliber breeder, if you have friends with good hunting dogs and they have a litter and you, you take that dog home, all the steps are the same. And and, and I can tell you right now, I mean, a, a well-bred lab to be a, a, a hunting retriever champion, master hunter type of dog in the hunt test game, that's that's a spectacular animal. Don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise but it's very attainable it's very attainable if if you do the right things and and you you nurture the right behaviors and and build that drive and just get that dog to understand you know how this work goes uh to pick up three ducks and run a couple of blinds and just be under control as impressive as it is and as complex as it really is i'm I'm making it sound so simple it's not um but man I don't want to say anyone can do it in a negative sense, but I think on a positive side, anyone willing to to just join the club or get with the right group of people, so many more people could do this sport and have so much sure. better dogs. And I think that's true whether you're running griffs or short hairs or, or setters, spaniels. I don't, I don't care what. I, I truly believe that sporting dogs were bred to be companion animals and do a job with a handler, which is the key distinction. Their, their job involves being a team member, which makes them biddable and social and great family dogs. So, yeah, I mean, um, obviously doing this podcast, part of our goal is just to put our name out there. If anything, just to consult. I mean, if somebody wants help finding a dog or if you ever need help in the future, you know, finding a dog or a trainer or a group or something, you know, I think we all kind of have to have, have some accountability to each other, help each other find the information they need. And that's kind of what, got us all into these someone put their armor on your shoulder and taught you how to hunt you know what i mean exactly. they took in and, and so it's no different with dog training and i i just believe dogs make hunting that much better i don't if if there's no dog involved i have no interest that's how i agree man i agree 100 i i'll go out for deer hunting to put a deer in the freezer I mean, just for the meat and i'm in and out of the woods as fast as i possibly can be I mean, to me, I feel guilt. I don't bow hunt because I could be out bird hunting with my dog and I feel guilty sitting in a tree. I do because I'm like, I would much rather be hunting with my dog. And it's not that I feel guilt. I, I would even, I would say I feel guilty because I know I'm sitting there. I'm like, my dog is sitting at home and she would much rather be out hunting. And honestly, I'd much rather be, I'd much rather be out watching her hunt anyways. The only year I ever got into bow hunting was when my lab hurt his paw and he needed to take six weeks off and it went up in the middle of both seasons. Well, yeah. So you didn't have, you didn't have the choice. I mean, I've never right. been, I've never bow hunted. <laughs> it's probably something I should try, honestly, because I watch I watched so much deer hunting during the season on TV <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> I think the land management, all that stuff is fascinating, truly. Sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I watch dogs work, man. That's what, that's what I do. And, you know, and because we kind of have gotten into other breeds, it, we, I get a real healthy dose of upland, then we go into the more the the hunt test type of training with the retrievers. So our dogs do kind of both sides of the spectrum. And then we we dabble with, you know, some spaniels and some pointing dogs. And it's just a really good balance for me. Um, but, you know, in turn, just as a breeder, you, you learn a heck of a lot. I mean, I've really I've really taken things from spaniel training, especially in terms of upland and quartering and and spaniels are, are a very soft dog in general. I'm generally speaking, of course, but right. uh what they get these dogs to do in terms of quartering and control and and they do it with far less pressure than the retriever side of things and then on the pointing dog side i think just physical conditioning and and the roading and and i mean the the national championship in ames in tennessee just took place for all the pointers 
And those those English pointers and se- there's one setter in there, I believe. That's a three hour brace. I mean, think of the ground they cover. Think of the yeah. the physical the physical demands of that. Everyone everyone the judges of the gallery they're all on horses. Right. For for three straight hours, that dog is sprinting looking for birds. I mean, you really have to sit back and go for three hours. I mean, you know, the, the, they could go across an entire county. That's how much ground yeah. covering, you know. Um, so it, it, it's it's super cool. I don't care what breed you're into, but you know, getting a puppy, all the same rules apply. You know, you like I said, using the food I think, to reinforce positive behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look at George Hickox, who's a very well-known, you know, DVD right. type of training aid, which I think is a great starting point for somebody when they're looking at getting going. Uh, there's a guy who who spends a lot of time with English pointers. Now, English pointers, as much as I love them, it's kind of a little closet thing that I have is just this thing for pointers, but uh, not a popular breed for a family dog, not a popular breed for a preserve hunter here in the Midwest where we don't have, I mean, we're in Wisconsin. Yes, we can go to the grouse woods for sure. That's sure. the only, and, and there's waterfowl, but there is no wild upland birds in Wisconsin of any real population in terms of pheasants, quail. You know, we certainly don't have chuckers native to here, but uh, you're talking about a breed that he still puts through clicker training, treat training, obstacles, place training. His DVD has a whole section on it. Why? Because the dog learns to be a team member. They learn that you are this vending machine of treats. And if they, oblige these certain behaviors over time that they learn they're getting fed and as simple as that sounds when that dog's a year old you're in a whole nother level of communication and relationship with that animal so you want to buy your puppies from people that understand this because if they're happy with their dogs truly happy and honest with about their dogs that's what you're going to get you know if you're if i'm doing my job right i'm not going to breed anything that i wouldn't keep myself sure because if the puppy don't sell or if I have puppies left over from litters, I'm a responsible breeder. That dog has a home here until the day it dies. If, right. that, if it happens that way, it hasn't yet because we really don't do breedings until we have, you know, deposits and, and we know that most of them are spoken for, but certainly things change. And so, you know, I think a reputable breeder is more just about the quality of person. You sure, know, I mean, sure. it, anybody can get their hands on great genetics. Now it's not hard. You know, you can go out there and find litters out of, phenomenal pedigrees but you can't fall in love with pedigrees either you know titles titles are deceiving they mean a lot um and i i believe in them and i promote our sports but i will tell you this a title is also somebody who was willing to either spend the money and time themselves to go do it or had the money to send their dog to a pro to go do it and it doesn't necessarily mean that a litter mate to that mother of the puppies that didn't go hunt test couldn't produce just as good of a puppy right? Because genetically she's the same, right? You have two sisters from the same litter. One guy spends $30,000 to get a master hunter title and the other guy just hunts his dog. But there's people that wouldn't want puppies out of the hunting dog. Um, Yeah. I can't. I I know exactly. I know know exactly what you're saying, but I mean, but like you said, titles, they're, they're important because it shows trainability, right? They're important. I'll never say they're not important, but man, again, I know exactly what you're saying. It is not the Bible. It's not. I mean, right. that alphabet soup thing, looking for titles. Uh, and, and honestly, what I've noticed with the retrievers is everybody's lining up for puppies out of these field trial dogs. And nine out of 10 people are not running field trials. Sure. You know, a, a hunt test is where 40 of us can sign up and run in a, in a hunt test and we pass or fail. What the other guy does 
doesn't impact what I do. In a field trial, you're going for first place. The, the, the rest of the dogs matter because if you don't beat them, you don't win. And whether you're talking pointing dogs or retrievers, you know, all age level field trial competition is the best of the best. It's, it's the most complex it's, you know, you're talking 400 yard, 500 yard marks in some cases in the pointing dog world, you're talking about dogs that go five, 600 yards out on the prairie to find birds. You know, are field trials practical for an everyday hunter? Not anymore. Field trials used to be about hunting. Now it's about pushing dog performance to the max. Well, you know, I don't know many people making 400 yard retrieves in a, on a duck hunt. Right. Right. And it actually, it's funny you actually say that because we actually t- I touched base on an episode a couple episodes ago. Um, the guy, he's a big English pointer guy, trains with a guy out of Michigan. He's got a couple national championships under his belt. Mm-hmm. That his trainer does. I mean, and, he, and we've actually touched base on like for upland dogs, English pointers. And like he's bought a couple of his field trial washouts and whatnot. And we touched base on that and it's like people hear that word like field trial washout they're like oh it's it's like who wants a washout everybody right i mean like for the average hunter that dog's going to be more than what you probably need and it's just because it couldn't handle that level of pressure and and what that game actually takes yeah and it's wild because even though i say all that and I'm, i'm not trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth but that's kind of what you need to do in this sport is the field trial dogs are still going to statistically produce more talented puppies than the non-field trial dogs. Sure. But at, at the same token, I think a lot of your duck hunters, your pheasant hunters, or even your hunt testers who have never run a field trial, and I'm one of them, I've dabbled in some very low-stake field trials like owner handle or qualifying, which is basically entry level to the sport, and I haven't had success. And the dogs I'm running are way better than what most people have. And it just goes to show you how good these dogs are. Um, And so I don't mind going to, if I'm adding a dog to my kennel and I'm not keeping it out of one of my own, if I'm going to go outside my lines just to have something I can mix in, I don't mind going to hunt test dogs because I know that's what I'm doing with mine. Sure. You know, if I know what I'm doing with the dogs, that's the criteria I use. And so I would just tell everybody, don't be caught up in hunt test or field trial or hunting. Maybe, maybe go watch the dogs run. Maybe talk to the owners about, you know, how they were as puppies to train and what, what their strong suits are. Me, I want a good looking dog that runs with style, that runs with purpose, that loves to train and loves to work. But I, I need that dog to come in the house and let my kids pull on them and climb on them and, and, you know, turn it off at night and lay down. And, and I know I'm describing what everyone says they want, but if, if you, if you go buy something out of two thoroughbreds and you want to just a trail horse, you can't be surprised sometimes when you have too much animal on your hands, you know, especially sure. if you're a novice handler, novice trainer, and you don't know what to do with that. That's a good analogy. I mean, that, and that makes sense too. And that goes all the way back to what you said is being honest with yourself and what you yeah. are as a hunter and a dog owner. You're probably, I, I'm guessing just getting to know you here talking, but I have a tendency to overbuy what I need or over engineer. You know, I, I, I need my 1500 crew cab pickup truck. That's all I really need, but I would sure love a 350 dually Lariat package that has all the bells and whistles. It, it's terrible gas mileage. I do not pull any trailers that would need it, but it would just be really cool to have. Right. And I've been that way with dogs too, but you know, I also live on 10 acres. I have a kennel facility and I am kind of equipped to deal with, 
more of a hard charging working dog than a guy who's living in a subdivision, works nine hours a day, has an hour commute to and from, you know, so the realistic thing is super important. And, and I've aligned myself with the right people and, and I've dedicated a lot of years to learning this stuff and I'm still learning, but I don't recommend people just go, well, I want something out of field champions. That'll be the best dog ever. It might be, but also might be a tremendous challenge that you're not equipped for. Right. You know, and I, I'm, Again, what I'm saying is it's such generalized. It's generalized. Yeah, it, it's, it's so not true. I mean, there's so many great dogs out of field champions. I don't mean to scare people from field trials, but it just doesn't make sense to be a duck hunter who needs a dog who can sit there for six hours if no birds come in and be quiet and be well mannered and not disrupt the blind and versus field champions who come to the line and they literally run triples and quads, the shortest birds 200 yards. And they have enough drive to do a 200, 300 yard swim. I mean, they have a horse, they have horsepower and a motor that some people can't even fathom. I'm not saying it can't be a house dog, but don't tell me that dog will be a piece of cake if you're only going to walk it 20 minutes a day and put minimal time right. in. I mean, you're just setting yourself up for, you know, an unhappy situation for you and the dog. When in reality, you needed more of a mild mannered animal, but no one goes into the dealership and says, well, I want the most badass V6 you have. You know, and and it's unfortunately that's how some people are, you know, Um, but I I think you're seeing better animals today than you ever did. I think because of breeders, I think because of of people that understand just just training, our knowledge of how to train these dogs is so much better than it was even 10 years ago, even five years ago, that I think, you know, you're getting balanced temperaments, balanced brains. And we're also understanding how to get more out of dogs without being, you know, heavy and hard on them. So it starts with puppies and then it carries all the way up through. So I'm very long winded. I'm sorry. No, you're all good. No, you're good. I do have, I do want to, I do want to let this little bit of time go for you. I want you to let everybody know how they, like, I want, like what your kennel name is, how they can find you, Facebook, Instagram, website, all that stuff. Cause I definitely want people to be able to look you up. Um, I want, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're uh, we're in southeast Wisconsin, a town called Trever. So uh, probably, you know, as far south and east as you can get in the state. We're down by Kenosha. Uh, our kennel name is is South Fork Retrievers. Um, south Fork is not really significant. I just when I bought 10 acres, uh, I grew up in suburbia. So when I bought 10 acres, everyone joked. My parents watched the show Dallas in the 80s. And the name of the ranch was South Fork. So everyone joked that I bought, you know, South Fork. Cause when you're from the suburbs, 10 acres is like a cattle ranch to them. Sure. <laughs> um, Love it. So South Fork retrievers just stuck. Uh, it's my wife, Helena and I, we have two girls. Uh, we have Sammy Harms, who is our kennel manager and she's basically full-time trainer. Although most of her time is spent on our dogs in the program. She does take puppies and young dogs in on two or three at a time. You know, she's got to make a living and, sure. um, we offer that to our clients. Uh, we also, we also have a few people that, that help out or just really family friends, but they're part of the team. Michaela Crawford, her husband, Robert, uh, Michaela's real big in all the other dog games, not just hunt tests. She does barn hunt and nose work and agility. So we offer group classes to our clients, try to get all the puppies back, help build that foundation. Like we talked about, um, our website is southforkretrievers.com. Pretty simple. Uh, on Facebook, it's South Fork Retrievers. You find us. Uh, Facebook's really good for us. It, it's kind of our main vehicle, honestly. Uh, we get private messages. People can look at all of our pictures. We do have Instagram, South Fork Retrievers. 
uh, and those are linked together. So we post on one, we post on the other, but we try to post a lot of stuff from just our, our previous litters, you know, people's pictures from home with their puppies, hunting photos. Uh, so, so we are a retriever kennel labs and goldens. Um, I learned on Chesapeake. So anybody interested in Chesapeake's, I definitely have, you know, a former mentor who breeds and, um, we guide at two or three local preserves. I think we were talking today. We think collectively our, our dogs probably saw close to a thousand pheasants this year. Um, again, not any one dog, but just right, right. a lot of corporate hunts, a lot of 40, 50 bird shoots. So when you do three sure. or four of those a week, it doesn't take long, <clears throat> but, um, you know, we have a spaniel here that is from a mentor of mine. I just wanted to own one and I love him. He's been a lot of fun, purely an upland dog for me, but uh, and then we we mess with some pointing breeds, and and that's because our goal is to ultimately become an, an all breed uh, training program. I'm not going to be an all breed breeding program necessarily. I sure. don't know that yet. Uh, maybe, you know, I'm crazy enough to try it, but uh, <laughs> it just depends. But yeah, I mean, we, we, retrievers is what we do, um, and I know so many people in in the sport that anybody that called or emailed me, you know, I can put you in touch with the right person for whatever your sure. question or whatever you need. And, but yeah, I mean, we're trying to breed, you know, family and field dogs. We're not a field trial kennel. Uh, as much as I, I strive to take my handling skills and my training skills to that level, I, I don't see us going down that road anytime soon, but absolutely high level hunt tests. We love that sport and we love to, to chase pheasants around. We do. Um, even if it is preserve hunting, we still love it. I love watching dogs work and it never gets old. So that's kind of what we're about. I don't know if, if I answered all of your questions, but. Oh man, it was a great episode. I mean, there's a ton of knowledge, ton of knowledge here, ton of knowledge that you, that you just put out. I mean, it was great. It really was like you brought up things that I never even thought about really. So it was good. No, it was, well, at, it was least really good. Thinks so. at least someone thinks so. At least someone thinks But yeah, hey, I'd love, I'd love to uh, we'll do some training. We'll do some hunting maybe someday or get you down here, let you run some retrievers. Um, yeah. But yeah, hey, it'd be cool. We'll uh, we'll share this when it's up and and try to get our people turned on to this show. I know you talk a lot more than dogs on this show, which is awesome. You know, a lot of lot of content, I, a lot of a lot of stories. A lot of my shows, like I I kind of try to change that a little bit. That's kind of why I want to do the puppy episode because I also wanted. I love the stories. I love going back telling stories and just talking with people. Like that's always been my show. But I want to sprinkle in some more knowledge too from people that are far more knowledgeable than this than me. So people can come back and look at some of these episodes and be like, hey, I'm, it's, I'm getting a puppy. Oh, I want to go back. Like, and listen to that again. Man, so. there's so much more. I, mean, I hate, you know, I, it's, you can't go longer than we have because people start turning it off. Right. But, you know, there's so much to what, what should I pick? How do I pick? Why, do I want to be first pick or fourth pick? Or, you know, so if you ever want to do a follow-up, if you ever want to talk more Perhaps about I it, you know, just let me know. You might have to make this a series. I'm going to have to think about that real quick. Maybe we I will. Promise Maybe this I'll will be, be on, the start I'll of a series. Time next time. That's all good, man. Well, again, Ryan, I really appreciate you coming on. To, to all my listeners, thanks again for listening. I wouldn't do this if you didn't tune in. And as, I can, as I've seen the numbers lately, I mean, I keep getting more and more of you tuning in. So really, thank you all. Thank you for guys sharing it. Thanks to all the new listeners coming in and sticking around to all the original ones, too. So. Again, Ryan, thanks. And until next time, keep chasing that experience. Thanks for tuning in to another killer episode here on Paddle and Fin. Be sure to drop a five-star rating, a thumbs up, or smash that subscribe button on any platform you're listening in on. 
Be sure to check us out on Waypoint TV, waypointtv.com. Make sure you sign up for the Fantasy Kayak Fishing League at paddleandfin.com forward slash fantasy. You can support this show through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash paddleandfin. Don't forget to check out the website paddleandfin.com. Catch us on YouTube. If you got a question, comment, or want to see a future guest on the show, be sure to email us at paddleandfin at gmail.com. Shout out to our show supporters, Yak Gadget. You can check out all the fine kayak accessories at yakgadget.com. Pelican Professional. For all your cases, coolers, and lighting needs, go to pelican.com. Rocktown Adventures. Your Midwest premier paddle sports destination. Go to rocktownadventures.com. Eastport Marina. The beautiful destination on Dale Hollow Lake. If you're looking for lodging, kayaks, kayak accessories, or anything fishing related on the beautiful Dale Hollow Lake, go to eastport.info. Jigmasters Jigs. When in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com and fill your tackle boxes today.